next case for argument, case number 22-1623 from South Dakota, United States versus Eric Ledoux. Mr. Rush, when you're ready. May it please the court, counsel. Your Honor, this case arises out of a conviction uh, three, of three counts occurring back in October uh, 14th of 2021, where Mr. Ledoux was convicted of three counts of possession of a firearm uh, by, an, an unregistered, by a, a person who's unauthorized. Two of those counts related to a gun that was found under the front passenger seat of his car. The third one was a YouTube video or a uh, Facebook video that was later found uh, on his account. Mr. Ledoux char uh, challenges his conviction on three grounds that are set forth in the brief. First, that the South Dakota District Court's Standing Order 16.04 improperly denied him of his ability to have access to his discovery to prepare for a trial and at trial. Secondly, that the District Court improperly denied Mr. Ledoux a jury instruction on duress or coercion, uh, finding that he had to testify first before they could be properly considered. And lastly, that there was insufficient evidence to support a finding by the jury that Mr. Ledoux had possessed a short-barreled shotgun, or in fact that he had any knowledge whatsoever of that shotgun. Turning first to my first argument, I was lucky enough to have the case in front of you of United States versus Smith that's uh, cited by opposing counsel. And in that case, this court held that there's no sufficiency requirement of uh, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 16D1. And in that case, I'd like to cite to you the actual wording of 16D1. And it says, at any time the court may, for good cause, deny, restrict, or defer discovery or inspection or grant other appropriate relief. Now, contrary to this standard, which says that for good cause, South Dakota has implemented Standing Rule 16.04, and 16.04 says, appointed CJA panel attorneys may, consistent with this order, review any sealed or restricted portion of the file with their client, but may not provide copies to the defendant. When you sign the uh, um, stipulated the stipulation to enter the standard discovery order? Don't you waive this argument? I mean, at the end of the day, is it your obligation to say, I refuse to sign the stipulation, and I want to enforce discovery under the rules, and then bring a motion to the district judge saying, I'm not going to waive uh, the, uh, the, the rights that my client has to discovery. 
I'm going to enforce them fully. Because what you've done here is you have signed a stipulation. You really didn't give the district judge the chance to, to actually go piece by piece through the evidence. And, and I've done this. I mean, I've spent many, many days doing in-camera reviews of, of discovery requests and said, yeah, these are documents and, you know, um, that, that, that the defendant has a right to and that they don't need to be, uh, you know, kept from the, the defendant. I mean, but the stipulation sort of bothers me because I, as I look at it, I'm saying, don't you waive this when you when you say, okay, enter standing rule, the, the order under the standing rule, I mean, standing order under the rule. What the stipulation says is that you have read 16.04, which is already in effect. So regardless of signing the stipulation or not signing the stipulation, you have no right to review this discovery with your client. And that's in all cases. There's no good faith finding or no uh, uh, supported reason for this. Yeah, but can't you, can't you bring a motion to say, you know, I want leave of the court to, to review this information with my client, and then can't you then have framed it up so that, it, that we know what documents you're talking about and we're, we, we, we know the parameters of the... That's, this is my entire practice. My entire practice is comprised of, and that was the Smith case. It's the night of trial. Massive amounts of discovery are handed to you. And you say, hey, I would like to review those with my client, but I can't. He has to go to jail. Mr. Ledoux has no right to see his counsel after 5 o'clock. You have to have that reviewed a day ahead of time and set up with the jail, and then only during business hours. And so in this case, all the way through this case, redactions are being made, changes are being made, additional discoveries being provided, and I have no ability to review this with Mr. Ledoux. I have standing order 16.04, and that was what I had made in the Smith case, is to say, hey, look, give me an opportunity to give this to my client in his jail cell with nobody else to review this. This case has no co-defendants. This case has no, uh, nothing confidential whatsoever. And the simple oh, but fact you didn't ask the district court to do what you just described, right? Correct. Okay. And the fact of the matter is, is that we used to not sign them. As a matter of course, we would not sign these things. And then the, the court finally got to the point of, you just don't get discovery. We're not giving you discovery until you sign it. And that's the way that it exists today. And that's simply untenable. It's interesting that I continually appear in front of you as the third attorney. I'm always the third attorney, and this is how these cases are coming down now. The first person that appears is the Federal Public Defender's Office who meets with them. These cases have hundreds of hours of discovery, and I have the ability to get one hour with these people in a supervised setting. So the first attorney makes uh, their best attempt at the Federal Public Defender's Office to give this stuff to them. They can't, the client gets mad, now we have private counsel. Private counsel comes in, you think, okay, now we're going to get some discovery reviewed, but it's simply impossible. Um, and the, I think in the Smith case, I had it figured out to be 1,200 hours of uh, review that needed to be done, and I can get one or two hours a week. So what you're left with is a situation where attorneys are unwilling to undertake this responsibility when they can't provide the services to the client. And so where does John come in? John comes in as the third attorney for the pro se individual. Because now they figure, hey, I'm gonna get rid of my, uh, my second counsel. Now I'm pro se, now I get my discovery. And it's not true. 
So I get appointed to represent people, and I was Mr. Ledoux's pro se counsel because his ideas, I want to see this discovery. I've got a trial coming up. I'll be pro se. And it's still the same thing. Mr. Rush is appointed to go to the jail and watch Mr. Ledoux read this uh, discovery. And in, in, in the end, it doesn't happen. So if we continue to keep this, this standing order, what ends up happening is we put attorneys in a position where they are to watch people read. There's no possibility that they can review all of that discovery. And so you end up going to trial. Most of these cases that I have, the, the uh, United States versus Yellowbird that's presently before you, I'm given 30 days and there's 1,100 hours of discovery. Now, how's that going to work out? If you don't allow clients to have their discovery, you're setting attorneys up for a position where it's simply untenable. Counsel, you know, you're just at, you're asking us to rethink U.S. v. Smith. That's what you're asking us to do. Correct. You haven't, you didn't appropriately put that in front of the district court. So under the rules and the law, we can't review that now. So I, I think there's your problem. You didn't properly make an objection in front of the district court. You didn't give the district judge a chance to say anything about it. It's not properly before us to, to, to decide this issue and rethink a, a case this circuit has already decided. So I, that's, I, there's your problem. So we, we can talk about it if we want, but I don't see how you get through that. How you get past that? Yeah, how do you get past that? How do you get this in front of us to decide today? Mr. Ledoux has a constitutional right to be able to prepare for trial. He, throughout that case, has not allowed his discovery. It's all throughout this. Throughout the record, he has uh, attempted to fire attorneys. He's attempted to uh, do whatever it takes to get, this, to get this information. And the fact of the matter is, is that even if I would have made a motion to the court to get have this stuff assigned to him, that standing order still takes place. But you, but you still needed to make the motion in order for, it, for us to decide it. Okay. And you didn't. Correct. And the second issue I'd like to talk about is that the district court improperly required Mr. Ledoux to take the stand before he would be considered for a du du uh, coercion or duress um, response. And in the record, and it's actually cited by opposing counsel, the judge indicates that once Mr. Ledoux takes the stand, we will visit the issue of whether he gets a coercion or duress response. And it says it's not only required him to take the stand, but to take the stand and admit that he had possessed that gun. And I think that improperly requires him to give up his constitutional right not to take the stand. But, but you still need to produce evidence of duress in order to get the instruction. So you have to have some indication from some other witness that, you know, you could have put on a witness that said, that the defendant was acting bizarrely, that he seemed to be under great stress, that he hadn't slept for days on end, uh, that, you know, that kind of thing, right? I mean, and the problem I see here is that, is that the evidence of duress is that, you know, it, it may be circumstantial, but it's also quite tangential, right? I mean, because you got a video. Here's, here's the problem with, and this kind of goes to the first issue, is when we admit somebody's Facebook record, you're admitting years of discussions. And in those Facebook records that were given to the judge, first you have the video that says, hey, if you're coming after me, I'm going to kill you motherfuckers. This isn't a, a, a Glock or whatever he says on there. But he's directing that video 
at somebody who's already made a threat to him. There's a discussion throughout the entire Facebook uh, account, for lack of a better words, of how he's directing it, if you're coming after me, if you're coming after my family. So all of that stuff is in there. But to require him. Counsel, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have a question about that. I, in, on page 22 of your brief, you say, the Facebook videos that were presented to the jury in which he is seen shooting the AK-47 into the hillside while telling that camera that he has a gun too, and if people are going to threaten his family and come after him, he is fully armed and will defend himself, provided a basis for an instruction on duress. So you're saying that he gets an instruction on duress because he took an AK-47 and shot it into a hillside, even though he was prosecuted for being a felon in possession of a firearm, but he gets a duress instruction. I just want to make sure I understand that. That's your argument, right? Mr. Ledoux had a special status because of his past case. He was being threatened. There's no doubt about that. I believe the officers also testified about that. And as a result of those threats, there's, there's no two ways about it. If you look at the Facebook records, he's clearly being threatened. He goes to the least harmful place, a gun range, makes a video in response to that. But he had legal alternatives. He could have gone to the police. He had in the past. Is that in the record? Yeah. There's an entire side to the case of his past activities that's not discussed in the record. And for, uh, for, and a variety of reasons. From I, I get it. I get I it. I, we, we get understand. it. Okay. We understand. So that's the, situa that's the situation. And his decision not to testify is based solely upon redactions that are made that he has no chance to review. As the trial is going on, we're making redactions to videos, and I have no ability to review these with him. And so we make the and decision. Counsel, it's different here. You're into your rebuttal time, okay. so you know. If, I'm going to just finish with this. We're into this. I have no ability to take that evidence and show him and say, hey, look, here is what is going to be presented. Do you want to testify? So his decision not to testify was a conscious decision based on, I have no idea what that evidence is. I haven't been able to review it with my counsel. I have no idea what they're going to present. I'm going to stand on everything that's in the Facebook record. And the, when the judge made the decision, there was no chance that he had reviewed everything that was in the Facebook uh, information. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Kelderman. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the court and counsel. Uh, my name is Eric Kelderman. I'm an assistant U.S. attorney. I'm here. I uh, represented the United States at the trial of this matter, and I'm here on appeal as well. <clears throat> uh, the defense today and throughout this appellate process has uh, raised issues that should have been raised in the district court, and they were not. We're talking about the standing order or it's now a local rule in the District of South Dakota that's been approved, actually, I believe, uh, the court would know better than I, but I believe that it's been approved by the chief judge of the, the circuit court. Uh, but I'm going to go quickly, or first, to the second issue. <clears throat> there was no evidence presented of any threat 
Well, the Facebook do, video, you said any threat. There, I may have interrupted your sentence. Go I, ahead. There's of any, I'm sorry, of any threat being made to him before he went out and made these three different videos that he posts on Facebook. <clears throat> there's a short conversation in one of the Facebook posts that's cited in my brief where he's having a conversation with an individual named Paycheck Johnny. He then mentions to Paycheck Johnny, I've got a gun too, I believe is the words that he used. Paycheck Johnny responds and says, are you threatening me? This is a defendant who is posting this information. He's sending it out there, and he is telling the world, I've got a gun. He's had guns in the past. There's nothing about this uh, that demonstrates that he had any imminent threat. Nothing in the record shows that he had any threat, that he couldn't go to the police, that he couldn't resolve this in some legal fashion. It just is not in the record. Uh, but what happens at trial is uh, the defense requests the instruction beforehand. I believe it's uh, document 57 in the record. Proposes the instruction on duress. We get to the settling of, a, of instructions toward the end and the judge says, what's the evidence of him being under duress, that he needed to use this gun to ward off a threat or to take care of himself? And well, uh, counsel concedes he would probably have to testify to that. He doesn't point anything out about the Facebook records or anything like that. <clears throat> it's possible, I didn't argue it in the brief, but it's possible that the issue's been waived as well by his concession on that. The court says, if he testifies, if there's some evidence about this, I'll reconsider and I'll think about giving the instruction. Any other, any further record on that counsel? No, nothing else. Nothing else is said. The instruction isn't given because essentially it's been conceded that there's no evidence of it and the defendant would have to testify. <coughs> as far as discovery, and these redactions and things like that. Uh, it's been alleged that there's a discovery problem here. And this case has nothing to do and in no way even uh, mimics Smith in, as far as discovery goes. The discovery was provided to counsel in July when he signed the stipulation that's been at issue here. Two days after Smith is decided, counsel was counsel of record in Smith. He knows all about the discovery the standing order, the local rules on that, he still signs the stipulation. The case goes along for three months and he gets discovery right away then. All of the videos, every video, every paper, the only thing that came in at some point later uh, was a certified record from the ATF on the National Firearms Registration Transfer Record. They actually put out a stamped copy, anyway it was a, a later, uh, received and uh, given to counsel. Everything that was admitted at trial was provided in July to counsel. Three months, two and a half months before trial when he first got on the case. The redactions that were made during trial, all of the redactions were done. Uh, the only last minute one, the only thing that we're talking about in the record is uh, one uh, video by Officer James Halterman. It's his body camera, I believe. I wanted to admit the video. I had redacted everything out of it, except for about 
10 minutes or so of audio where he's talking to the defendant, I'd taken everything else out because I didn't want to be standing at this lectern trying to explain to this court why all this different hearsay is all over the place on these videos. Counsel was aware. I was talking to counsel as we were approaching trial. We get to trial and we're talking about this exhibit. Counsel has some objections to it. We go on for, I think it's 10 pages in the record. I believe volume two of the transcript, pages 30 to 40. <coughs> and the court is basically saying, well, we played it. We played it, the jury went out, and it was played on the, in, on the speaker system. The judge had headphones on, and the judge says, I can't hear uh, what you're saying is in there. I said, well, Your Honor, I know that's not loud, but I hear it every time I listen to it. The judge says, well, I think this is uh, going to be prejudicial, so I'm going to exclude it. Well, okay, then may I have Officer Halterman talk about the statements that he made there? You may do it that way. That's, that's really the entirety of the redactions that we're talking about because we were talking about redacting that video. But the, the record doesn't contain references. I don't recall a single one other than that about redactions being made during trial. And again, all the discovery is sent in July. They can look at every video and every minute of it. The whole time the defense has it, all that I did with any redactions toward the end was removing audio. So there was nothing, there was no late discovery. They had every bit of it. I just removed some of the audio at the end. Council had an obligation to let the district court address uh, the, the standing order, the local rule that's in place with regard to discovery. Years ago, uh, counsel's law firm, I, I agree with him that they used to not sign the stipulation years ago. Uh, and at that point, when that was going on, we still provided all the discovery under Rule 16. That was our obligation to do so. Uh, I think that was before there was actually a local rule or a standing order in the court uh, in that regard. Uh, but we did do that. And then if they wanted to see other things, they could come to our office and view them. Inconvenient, but we were complying with the federal rules. Here, regardless of any standing order or local rule, Rule 16.1B, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure, specifically states that uh, one or more parties may ask the court to modify any discovery order. The district court's local rules also permit it uh, in uh, I guess it's uh, 1604 is the old local rule, I believe it's in, or the old standing order. I believe it's now in local rule 16.1. But it allows modification. It allows them to uh, seek to have the court modify it and do something different under different circumstances. Uh, I've had pro se defendants, and I know a number of my colleagues have had pro se defendants, where the U.S. Marshal Service will bring them to the courthouse for a morning or an afternoon, a lot of time. Allow them to look at their discovery if they're pro se in a case. So there are plenty of different ways that this can be and actually does get addressed. Counsel, I had a pro se trial four weeks ago. And we put it all on a stick drive and gave it to him and let him get it, use it in the jail. Why, why not just do that? The, the reason 
for the standing order or for the local rule is danger to other defendants. Uh, it's also danger not, to- Not true in this case though, right? Well, in this case there were no co-defendants, uh, but some of the discovery- And I interrupted your answering the question. Go ahead. Uh, some of the discovery here referred to other people. Uh, Mr. Ledoux is actually under indictment right now in a separate drug-related matter. Yeah, but if they leave it in the, in, the, in the prison library and all they can do is they don't have a computer in their, in, in their cell, so they've got a stick drive with all the entire discovery file on it. They can take it to the jail, at, uh, to the library at the jail. The only way they can access it is in the library at the jail. And at the end, you take it back. What is wrong with that? Uh, from, from a procedural standpoint, because then the defendant has full access to everything in the discovery file. Indeed, Your Honor. First of all, we have a standing order, and I'm required to follow that. Well, that, that's not exactly true. You could ask the court. I mean, for years, I, I ordered that there be a laptop at the jail, that the discovery be produced on, a, on, a, on a, either a flash drive or a disk, uh, that it be in the possession of the United States uh, or of the of the, uh, the whoever was in charge of the facility, uh, that uh, they review it in a private place where no one else can see it, and that the jailers take it back, um, both the computer and the disk, so that they were never accessible to anyone and they couldn't be copied, right? And the and the computer's completely locked down, so it can't can't get to the internet, can't put anything anyplace else, right? So it was, I mean, and it worked. I mean, we did it for years. Your Honor, I agree. There are a number of different ways that it could be approached. There just was no request here. This, I, I, there's no way to get around the waiver. Uh, if, if there had been some case or just any request made, uh, I, I'm sure that Judge Viken would have considered it. I can't say that he would have granted it, but he would have considered it. Uh, he takes defense requests just like every district judge does, takes them seriously. Because uh, as counsel mentioned, we're talking about a constitutional right. He's a right. former federal public defender, right? That's right. Yeah, the That's public exactly defender. Right. Proceed. Uh, but even constitutional rights, if you don't give the district court a chance to discuss it, to address it, there's just no way that it, uh, they can do anything about it. And I think... Uh, Judge Erickson, after, you know, two days after you and your colleagues issued the opinion in Smith, this stipulation gets signed. And three months go by. And then he's convicted. And then we go another five months, I believe, until sentencing. Not one time was this brought up. A new trial motion, anything to allow the district court to address this. It just simply did not happen. Counsel, I have a question for you uh, in, I believe, the reply brief from the appellant. Um, a new case was brought up, a Tenth Circuit case, Michelle. Okay, in that case, I think the Tenth Circuit upheld the felon of possession conviction but did not uphold the sawed-off shotgun conviction. I want to give you a chance to respond on that case since it was just brought up in the, in the last briefing. I, I did notice it. I uh, didn't go in and look at it uh, deeply. What I will say about the sawed-off shotgun conviction, that was two counts. It was a felon in possession and possession of an unregistered firearm. He's in, uh, Eric Ledoux is in a high-speed chase in the passenger seat of a car. They go around to different places in Rapid City. They end up in the parking lot of Walmart. Uh, after one person had already 
dived out of the car. Uh, he's in the front passenger seat. They get him out first. He's taken to an officer's car uh, quite a distance away. As soon as they get the other passengers and the other people out of the car, an officer sees in plain view the shotgun. He's looking at from the back, uh, the rear passenger side through the door, he can see the barrel. That shotgun, it's a, it's a Marlin goose gun. The thing normally, originally, has a 55-inch barrel. That thing has a 9-inch barrel, and its overall length is about this. There's no dispute that it was it, it fell within the, the, the law with regard to being a shot-off shotgun, correct? Sorry. I, that, that's, that's not in dispute, right? Yep. <laughs> I, I won't believe That's correct, Your Honor. I don't believe it is. Uh, Whose car was it here? I'm looking at the summary of the Michelle case. I will. I had a note here to bring this up, Your Honor. Uh, it was his mother's car. But in I our don't case, it's his mother's car. It's his mother's car in this case. In Ledoux's case. In Ledoux's case. But I have to clarify, I believe that was on a video, and I cannot point to exactly okay. where that was said. It's not in the transcript. Thank you. He's got the shotgun under his seat with the stock toward him, a duffel bag with shotgun shells, and eight of them loose on the floor at his feet. What about the women's clothes that were supposedly in there? Again, uh, that doesn't matter. I don't believe it does, Your Honor. It's uh, it's all well. There's loose sh loose casings by his feet as well. It just happens to be where things were after a high speed chase. But most importantly, at the jail when he's talking to Officer Halterman, or Halterman and Officer Jones are talking, and Ledoux is sitting there, he makes a contact. He makes a comment about. What are you doing with those other people, the other people from the car? Uh, he says, I wouldn't charge them with that gun. Well, not really talking about guns, but more specifically, no one had mentioned to him a 12-gauge. He calls it a 12-gauge, not a Glock, not a handgun. He told that to the officer, right? He said that to the officer, and there's testimony from Officer Halterman about that. Your time has expired, Counsel. Thank you. Thank you for the argument. Mr. Rush, rebuttal. Noted by Judge Viken, there's no evidence whatsoever that he hadn't been told it was a gun. The most important thing I want to get to the uh, justices is this. When I'm appointed as the third attorney on these cases, and the other one in front of you, there's a trial set. This one, we were already a year into it. The individual is pro se. The individual has not had their discovery all the way through, and now they want a trial. It is not possible to go to that individual at that point and say, hey, I think we ought to do a motion for something that has never been successful, not once ever, and delay your trial. They're not going to do it. You know, it's never happened in the history of the South Dakota District Court that anybody has been provided any discovery at any point ever. And this standing rule directly conflicts with... Counsel, I, I bet that fact's not in the record, right, Mr. Rush? Correct. Yeah, for sure. But... The, the, over and over and over. Some of these trials I have set with 14 days before trial, some of them with a month before trial, and you're not going to object to this continued standing order. Second, uh, lastly, that car was in fact his mother's that he was recovering from a female who had taken it from his mother's. Now, this is not in the evidence, but I think it's important to the court. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, Mr. Rush, for your service under the Criminal Justice Act. Appreciate that. Case number 22-1623 is submitted for decision by the court. Ms. McKee.